A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 18, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. It took a few seconds for the absurdity of this statement to sink in. Then Ron voiced what Harry was thinking. You're both mental. Ridiculous, said Hermione faintly. Peter Pettigrew's dead. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Well, Matt, you are telling a story in the theme of friendship today, and I cannot wait to hear which story about me you're going to (laughs) tell. Vanessa, I'm not telling a story about you. Because our friendship is unquestioned, unsullied, uncomplicated. Perfect. It's perfect. That's right. That's right. And so I wanted to, in order to explore friendship more deeply, I had to lift up a more fraught, perhaps, example. So my best friend growing up, or one of my best friends when I was a child, lived three doors down from me on the street that I moved to in first grade. You know, we spent the summers playing outside together, and we always went to the same school. In elementary school, we walked to school together. In middle school, we took the bus together. You know, when I got my driver's license, we'd drive together. We were just, we were friends from first grade to high school graduation. But this was interesting because we ran in really different circles. I think that we developed a strong friendship as young children and as our social relationships and social circles kind of diverged as we grew older and entered adolescence, we remained friends and we remained pretty close. One thing that bound us together is that we both really loved the University of Notre Dame. We were both college football fans and and liked Notre Dame football. At the end of high school, I got accepted to Notre Dame and I went to Notre Dame for college. 
my friend Tony, you know, he just had a different path. He didn't go to college. He was a dad by the time he graduated high school, or I can't remember the time exactly, about to be a dad, whatever. He was just in a different place. And so, you know, I moved down to South Bend from where I grew up in West Michigan. And one of the first things I did was I invited Tony down for a football game to come to campus. He'd never been to campus before. I wanted to come down with me. We'd go to a game together. I thought it'd be great. And it was. It was pretty good. He came down. He had to take the train. There was a, you know, because of our weird train system, he had to take the Amtrak to Chicago first and then over to South Bend, which added like three hours to the trip. But he came and he stayed in my dorm room with me and he met all these new friends who were new friends to me. I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about is what's the difference between old friends and new friends. But these were all new friends to me, people I had only known for, what, four weeks or six weeks by the time he came for this fall football game. And I remember us, I think it was like Friday night or Saturday morning, the game hadn't happened yet. And we were all sitting out in the hallway, like the college brochure, right? Like kids sitting in the hallway, talking to each other on the floor. And then Tony just started giving me a hard time, which felt weird, right? Like, you know, this probably won't come as a surprise to a lot of our listeners, but I wasn't very romantically successful in high school. And, and Tony just started like really in front of these new friends of mine, like give me a hard time about this and like kind of bonding with these new friends of mine over their ridicule of me, which felt really awful, right? Because I felt like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be loyal to me. And I I brought you down here to come to come experience this with me, this thing that we have shared for so long in retrospect. But even in the moment, I knew that something else was going on with Tony. Like he he was feeling insecure. Because he was the one person who who was not a Notre Dame student. He felt outside and he was trying to feel comfortable in this space, which was probably hugely uncomfortable for him. Right. And I remember thinking and I have thought since, like, what is my role as a friend here to let him do this because I know what he's going through and I know why he's doing it or to say, like, hey, aren't you a loyal friend? Like, why? Why are you treating me this way? Why are you using this as like a way to to bond with these new friends of mine? At my expense, right? That really is a story. The story doesn't really have a happy ending beyond that or much of an ending beyond that. I mean, just because I ended up moving to Japan and moving lots of different places, he and I grew apart. You know, you know, I think the last time I saw him was the last time I was in Grand Rapids because his parents still lived a couple of houses down from my parents. And so we ran into each other and everything was friendly. And there was there was never any kind of crisis point after that situation, I think our our friendships just grew apart because they would have anyway. But that moment is still one that sits with me. And it makes me think about what is what is the responsibility of friendship? What's the role of friendship? How are we supposed to serve each other as friends? Yeah. To be clear, Matt, Tony's responsibility on that trip, regardless of how else he was feeling, was to make you look like the coolest person ever. It was like very clear what his job was on this trip. And I also just think it's completely understandable that he wasn't able to conjure that. But that's one of the interesting things about friendship, right? Is like all of the interweaving circles. His job was clear, but because he wasn't living up to his job, your job to be loyal to him is usually really clear, but it became unclear. Yeah, you're right. You've, You've phrased that much better and more succinctly than I did. I think that his job was clear. I thought that he should come down and and be my friend and be loyal to me, right? And he didn't. And because I was his friend and I knew him really well, I knew why. And I felt like, what is my friendly obligation here to just kind of take this? I didn't want to do that, (laughs) right? Right. Friendship is like really one of the things that is magical about being alive that you can 
technically not owe someone anything, have no familial bonds, have no legal bonds, have no financial bonds, and just choose to promise things to them tacitly, right? Like not even explicitly and live up to that. And because it's so important and beautiful and opaque in that way, they're also just so hard. They're so hard. Can I be a professor for just a second? Please. So in kind of the Greek ethical tradition, the ancient Greek ethical tradition, friendship was understood as the highest form of love, right? Mm -hmm. Because there were flaws, they would say, to like the kind of fierceness of like romantic or parental love. You, You love your child or your partner in a way that like maybe shuts out the world. But for for the philosophy of friendship back then, it was like, this is how we build communities is when people are good friends. And Aristotle actually has this definition of friendship. He said, there are three kinds of friendship, two are imperfect, and one is true friendship. And he doesn't say that the fact that they're imperfect doesn't make them bad necessarily. It just makes them less reliable. And the imperfect forms are friendships of utility and of pleasure. Like we like someone, we're fond of them because they do something for us. Or because mm-hmm. they give us pleasure. Maybe the thing they do for us is is make us happy, make us laugh, right? But he says perfect friendship is friendship when we like the person for who they are. Not because of something they give to us, but for who they are in themselves. And that inclines us to, to do things for them rather than mm-hmm. to expect things from them. And honestly, mm-hmm. I you know, I don't want Tony to come across poorly in this in this story. Tony was the third kind of friend most of my life, right? And I'm sure he could probably tell a story about me when I was the wrong kind of friend to him, because I think that these things actually overlap. I think the people who we admire also often are of use to us and give us pleasure, right? So these things overlap. But I think in that moment, what I felt like is, oh, I don't feel like I'm a person he admires. I feel like I'm a person that got him tickets to a football game, <laughs> right? And that mm-hmm. was it was that movement from like a, a friendship of virtue, which is what Aristotle would call it, to a friendship of utility that felt icky, right? Yeah. Oh, well, I was so glad that we picked this theme for this chapter, even though we did it, you know, in the way that we do, which is kind of randomly assigning it. But yeah. there is so much interesting friendship at stake here. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm just really excited to jump into it. So will you count me in for my 30 second recap? I would love to count you in. Okay. Vanessa, three, two, one, go. So Sirius and Lupin have just said that the rat is Peter Pettigrew. And they're like, no, Peter Pettigrew's dead. You guys are crazy. And so Lupin is like, let me tell you a story. I'm a werewolf. And my three best friends, including your dad, Harry, um, became an ama- an guy in order to run around with me. And this is when I realized that Peter Pettigrew was still alive because the Marauder's Map never lies. Sirius is there and is like, hurry up with the story, Lupin. I want to kill Peter Pettigrew. And Lupin is like, they have a right to know. And it turns out that Lupin has lied to Dumbledore and held back information this whole time. And then Sirius, not serious shows up snape snape shows up good job friend i'm glad that we can work together i'm glad that our listeners are friendly towards us and even though they take no utility or pleasure from our 30 second recaps they they still admire that we do it (laughs) okay matt it's your turn on your mark get set go Okay, so they just have learned that Peter Pettigrew is alive, or they just said it anyway, and and Sirius is like, out of my way, I got to kill him. And they're like, wait, Lupin says, wait, they deserve to know. And he starts telling a story about himself, that he is a werewolf, and that Dumbledore made a lot of accommodations to get him in, but they, there was a lot of danger involved in this. And he had these really great friends who became animagi, so they could accompany him during these painful periods. And then they learn a lot, a lot of other things. And then the door creaks, and Snape pulls off his thing and says, you almost tried to kill me, and I thought you were in on it, Lupin. And that's the end. 
You and I have such different editions of the book. That is not what Snape says in my edition. <laughs> that's, that's, I know. But in your edition, he's called Sirius. So... Yeah, so I know. Very right. different editions. That's right. Okay, Matt, I'm going to start us off, if you don't mind, Please. with a philosophical question. Uh-oh. During Lupin and Sirius's time, I don't even want to say apart, right? Like, mm-hmm. w- as they were assuming bad intentions in one another yeah. and assuming that they were each betrayers, were they still friends? Are, can you be ex-friends? Oh, boy. Good question. What Aristotle said was was that the th- perfect kind of friendship is one that admires the other for who they are, right? And if Lupin feels like it has been revealed to him that Sirius was not who he thought he was, it would make sense for that friendship to fall apart. Like, we are in, we're not friends anymore. I'm not loyal to you anymore because you're not who I thought you were. Right. And in addition, you also are, you give me no pleasure. You have no utility to me, right? Even these imperfect forms of friendship don't apply any longer. But I don't know. I think that one of the things, uh, you know, this is not, the purpose of this podcast is not actually to delve deeply into Aristotle's philosophy of friendship. I don't know that I'm fully satisfied with Aristotle's philosophy of friendship because I think there's a deeper form of love and care where like you, even if someone disappoints you or you find out that they're not who you thought they are, you still have some loyalty to them or at least loyalty to their to their flourishing, to them realizing the best of themselves or something, which, which I think any friendship that is actually lived within the realities of the way we disappoint each other and the way we let each other down and don't actually live up to all the values that we hold, that we share, right? Like you have to be able to say like, oh, here's a person who who has not lived up to the values that I admire in them. But that doesn't mean we're not friends anymore. On the contrary, the fact that I'm friends means I'm going to try to help that person live into those values or whatever, right? Now, the the right. case with Sirius is so extreme. I mean, they, he thinks that he right. betrayed their friend and murdered other people. It might be those are the kinds of breaches, which that's not just like, oh, he didn't quite live up to the values. He he made fun of me in front of my <laughs> other, other, these other new friends. This is like, if Tony had come into the dorm and murdered everyone else, that would have been something yeah. our friendship could not have survived. Yeah, it's just so funny, right? Because I, I do think that often friendship is one of the relationships that survives when we do horrible things. Yeah. Right? And again, like... Mass murder of innocence is very extreme, but I've had friends who've like cheated on a spouse, right? Or done things that like I in a perfect moral universe would really judge. Yeah. And because I love them, A, see the humanity in those decisions and, and also think that all things like that are quite complicated. But B, like it's just sort of irrelevant, right? Like I just love them- not even anyway. I just love them. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, at the least, I think we can see that Lupin is primed to receive Sirius again because of that friendship, right? He, right? he is able to believe this alternative narrative, which, as we learned from the children in this chapter, is very hard to believe. He's right. able to believe it really quickly, not just because he sees the Marauder's Map, but also because there still is an echo in his heart of who he thought Sirius was. Right. And and so he is able to extend that sympathy and understanding really quickly when in the moment, like Sirius actually looks like the guy everybody thinks he is. Like he's sitting on Ron when Ron's leg is broken and trying to kill this rat. Like he seems like a person who is fanatical and murderous. Right. And I think it's Lupin's sort of Lupin is able to see something else, not just because he has some evidence, but also because there is some lingering sympathy for who he thought Sirius was that makes him believe that he's still that person. And I also think, you know, I said before that I think that 
Aristotle's definition of friendship is maybe insufficient because I think there's a form of friendship, a deeper form of friendship, which which is loves and is loyal, even when the person doesn't live up to the virtues and values that we admire. Right. To me, one really interesting, maybe even moving example of of friendship is that Peter and James and Sirius like become animagi because their friend once a month is going through agony and they yep. can help him a little bit if they take this big risk, right? And the, yep. and the reason why I think that's important is, and Lupin says this in the chapter, is he becomes a werewolf. He's not, like, he becomes dangerous and violent and does not live up to all the virtues and values that good wizards should live up to. He becomes this monstrous thing when he's in this state and he knows it, he knows it about himself. It's in those moments when he is not himself at all, when he's not living up to who he should be, when he's not the friend that James and and mm-hmm. Sirius and Peter have come to admire. That's when they go with him, right, and try to make it easier for him. And to me, that's that's not about turning away from someone when they aren't who you think they are. It's supporting them when they're not who you think they are so they can return to who you think they are. Yeah. I mean, I think my favorite line certainly in the chapter, but I'm wondering if maybe the book is Lupin is explaining this to the kids. And he goes, now my three friends could hardly fail to notice that I disappeared once a month. And then he says, like, they found out, they figured it out, like you, Hermione, and they didn't desert me at all. Yeah. Right. This thing that he was so scared of that they would desert him. Instead, they do the opposite. Right. Right. They like, extra show up for him. Right. It's complicated, right? Because being a werewolf is not a moral failing, right? It is something that happened to him as a kid. Right. That's right. But the fact that they found out something about him that was potentially, certainly as like a very young person, you could yep. fail to understand, even choose to fail to understand, you know, is not a moral failing. And that instead they show up in this huge way. I think is just like so beautiful. The fact that he's a werewolf is not a moral failing. And that is a real important difference that we needed to consider. But I also think that none of us don't have moral failings, right? right. I think moral failing is also a natural part of being human. And so there has to be a form yeah. of friendship which can accommodate that. And and it's, so it's not a perfect analogy, but I, I do think that Lupin's identity as a werewolf can help us think through what it means to be with friends who do let us down and how we help to bring them back to themselves, right? I mean, it's something that I have talked about a lot on the podcast, and I know it's something that, like, happened with your family a lot, is, right, I was just thinking about the ways that having an illness can get in the way of friendship, Mm -hmm. right? And I, when I didn't know what my endometriosis was, I had symptoms that I found to be really embarrassing, as I would imagine that Lupin finds his symptoms to be embarrassing, And I would cancel on people. And I remember once I was supposed to come and visit you all for a weekend Mm -hmm. and canceled very last minute. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I was protecting you all by like not saying why I wasn't coming or I was definitely protecting my ego, right? Mm -hmm. And like some privacy. But right, like it it literally kept kept distance between us and understandably like disappointed the kids and Colette had made the bed and you guys had cooked, right? Like, and I was just thinking like, Illness can really get in the way of friendship and yep. and class can really get in the way of friendship and friendship. Obviously, you know, eventually when I got my diagnosis and I, I felt comfortable sharing with you all and I feel very much as though 
we have beyond moved past that and actually, you know, gotten closer through those conversations. But sometimes these things really do just get in the way of friendship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's beautiful that, right, like Sirius, Peter and James were able to get past it. But you also wonder if Lupin would have been able to do other things. I mean, we know for a fact he would be able to have other jobs if he wasn't a werewolf. Right. So, yeah, friendship is simultaneously this thing that can get past something like an illness, but also even friendship is negatively impacted by it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's still of the world, even if it right. resists all those structures. It's It doesn't exist outside of them. And it, it if it survives, it has to resist them, right? And those are things that, go, that are going on in this chapter as well, right? I mean, I think that yeah. Lupin's a werewolf. Also, Sirius comes from a pureblood family, which is deeply, deeply like entrenched within sort of the pure blood movement, like all these things are part of what's being reckoned with these unlikely friendships, right? Because this is an unlikely foursome, I think. I think that these, yeah. these folks all come from different, really different backgrounds, and they all they all resist those the the structural things that would drive them apart through their deep friendship. But then some of those structural things win in the end, right? Like Peter really does betray them. Peter really does cause the death of. James and Lily, there really is murderous animosity among them now. Lupin and Sirius really do plan to kill Peter. I mean, and then you just see like the Hogwarts structure get in the way of friendship too, right? With Snape. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Which, Matt, I have always read this as like poor Snape. They almost killed him. Mm -hmm. And in this reading, I was like, this prank actually kind of seems like comeuppance for something that Snape wanted. So what we know from the past is that Dumbledore says that Snape hated James because James saved his life. And this is where we find out what exactly that meant. And what it means is that Sirius once tried to play a prank on Snape where he told Snape to go into the Shrieking Shack while Lupin was in werewolf form. And James, at the last minute, prevented Sirius from doing it and therefore saved his life. I obviously think this prank was terrible because Sirius understood the stakes of what was going on in the Shrieking Shack. But what Lupin says, and is apparently abundantly true, is that Snape was following them around and wanted to get Lupin expelled. Yeah. And like... Is that based on just, like, house animosity? Like, what is going on here that Snape hates them so much? I mean, and we're going to see later in the books that there was bullying. Yeah. I guess this is just, like, toxicity, like, growing on itself like a cancer, right? Like, incremental bullying to the point where Snape wants someone expelled, and so they risk his life. Yeah. Which seems like the logical conclusion for this kind of animosity. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a line I've quoted on the podcast before from Marilyn Robinson, which is, there is no single transgression, there's a wound in all of humanity. I feel like we don't know where the starting point of this is. We know that this thing, endangering Snape's life, which Sirius was actually doing, endangering Snape's life, is mm-hmm. wrong, right? But we also know that Snape was following him around because he's trying to get Lupin expelled, as you said. And then we also know this whole background of bullying that's happening, and we don't know where this stuff starts. I mean, it, I think this also speaks to, like, the value of friendship, like, the kind of friendship that that we've been talking about that Snape's not included in here, but the kind of friendship which can 
survive or endure when the other hurts me or lets me down. When I do have the patience and loyalty to try to bring that person back into who they ought to be or who they could be. I don't know how you get around or how you break these retributive cycles unless you have the kind of friendship that's willing to to endure a little bit of that. And it seems like part of what's going on here, and it's present in the chapter still, is this idea that you're going to pay for for how you let me down or whatever. I mean, part of what's friendship, right, is like taking on another person's enemy, which is an interesting way that we sometimes show friendship, right? It's like, oh, you hate that person? Well, I hate that person too. And I know I've said this, right, where someone will start explaining to me why they don't like the person. And I'm like, no, no, I don't even need to know. If you don't like them, I don't like them. And it's sort of become this group that doesn't like Snape. And I wonder if on an individual basis, there are really animosities one by one, or if it's just this like group cohesion, which is potentially a downside of friendship, right? Is like loyalty for loyalty's sake at a certain point can become pretty dangerous. Yeah. I mean, you can even think about Snape's loyalty to Dumbledore in this way, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Snape doesn't have fondness for Dumbledore in the way that some of the characters who have fondness for Dumbledore, who have fondness for Dumbledore do. I mean, there's uh, the the obverse of the way you just put it is to say that the enemy, my enemy is my friend. Right. Right. And so like Snape just hates Voldemort for what happened to Lily. And Dumbledore is the most convenient way for him to resist all of that. And so he is willing to be loyal to Dumbledore in the more transactional utilitarian way, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I'm going to be loyal here. But that's also why there isn't the depth of sort of sympathy and compassion and empathy towards Harry, towards others who are who are resisting Voldemort, towards Dumbledore himself, Snape still seems really haunted by a lot of this past trauma and pain. So he's, you know, he doesn't, isn't able to live into the kind of the flourishing aspects of those friendships or the, the kind of supportive aspects of those friendships. Or what could be friendships, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's even here again tonight to, like, bust people, right? Like, he's not there to help the kids. Right. Like, he he's not here to, like, do good. He's here to catch Lupin again. Right. And I, I think, right, like, he is the character in these books that we just never see with a friend. Yeah. Lily was his only friend, and we know how that ended. <sighs> Lily was his only one. That's right. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. We've been talking about this older generation's friendship, Sirius and Peter and, and James and Remus. I want to think about just, you know, the, the protagonist of this book. Like, we also have three friends who are deeply bound, deeply loyal. We've seen that already in what, two and a half, two and three quarters books. We're going to continue seeing it throughout the series. And this older generation's friendships are ones that become fractured and murderous, right? And those of us who have read the whole series know that that's not going to happen to to Hermione, Harry, and Ron. There's going to be stress and there's going to be conflict, but it's not going to fall apart the way this these other friendships did. I just want to ask you, like, what what can we learn about friendship on the positive side from Harry and Ron and Hermione in this chapter, if anything? I mean, the thing that's amazing to me is that through eye contact and like small Mm -hmm. comments, they seem to be committed to consensus on what's going on. Yeah. Right. Like even just in those opening sentences, right? Like Ron is like, that's mental. And Harry is like, yeah. And then Hermione is like ridiculous. Right. And they just are backing each other up. And it feels like they're all learning and like dipping a toe into what the possibilities are and what they're, yep. they're hearing, but they're only willing to really believe it if the other two believe it as well. And yeah. none of them feel comfortable sort of accepting this alone, yep. which I think is, I think might be utilitarian, right? It's like, I don't totally trust myself in this moment. So, but I do trust the minds of my two friends. And so I'm yeah. going to keep looking at them and being like, wait, what? But there, I just think there's something really beautiful about the way that they, there's just so much eye contact and so much looking at each other and checking on each other in this chapter yeah. that I find really beautiful. Yeah, that's What right. about yeah. you? I think that's a really great reading because I was looking for something. I, I know that these three are, I mean, they're in this moment of, of extreme duress. And I, I was looking for hints and clues, but I hadn't noticed that. But you're right. Like, they already had this intuition, maybe because of everything that we've already been through. They have this kind of knowledge that whatever happens, we only get through this together, right? And so we're going to keep checking in with each other, keep seeing where the other one is. Like when Hermione presses, when Ron, you know, resists, they all kind of rally around whichever one of those movements they move as a unit, even even through these glances to each other. Yeah, that's a a really great reading. I think that's right. I think that is what we learned, that they, they just have this instinct to to stay together and to stay with each other and to move through it together, which is a good lesson in friendship. And it is what is going to carry them through the whole series. And right, they all are having very different experiences, yes. right? Like Ron is finding out that potentially like this rat that he has shared a bed with, you know, yep. for years is this murderer. And Hermione is feeling betrayed because she understood something about Lupin and, 
right. you know, it might be much worse than what she thought. And then Harry is getting information about his dad, right? Yes. There's this like half question where he's like, wait, my dad was an animagus? Like what, what animal was he? And he lets right. it go. And so they're still all very much in their own like individuated experiences, right. yes. but they seem to still be agreeing to only move forward together. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, their individual personalities are coming out so much. Ron seems so dismissive and so derisive. And Hermione is almost gentle in the way she's trying to help Lupin see how he couldn't be right. And Harry right. just wants to hear more about James Potter, right? And yet they all move together still, even in those individual uniquenesses. Yeah, that's that's great. That's right. So, Matt, one of the things that we want to be doing upon rereading the books is is thinking through critically some of the things that are talked about. And J.K. Rowling has commented about how Lupin's werewolfness is a metaphor for what she says are blood diseases like HIV AIDS. And I, I feel like we got to the heart of why I find this to be an upsetting metaphor, which is, right, that AIDS is not, A, not a moral failing, which neither is being a werewolf, but also at no point when you have HIV AIDS, are you dangerous to other people? Whereas when you are a werewolf for 12 hours during the full moon, you are actually a threat to other people. And yeah, I, I find this metaphor oversimplifying and troubling and that's all. Yeah, it's, it's a great example of why we should not take the author's kind of paratextual word for it, right? Right. Because I think that thinking about Lupin's plight can be morally useful in a lot of ways, but yeah. it's really, really c- kind of ugly and sort of sucks when we think about it with respect to HIV. Because we also have folks like Fenrir Greyback, right. who we're meant to understand is as cruel as he is because he is so deeply into his werewolfness, right, all the time. Right. So that's one problem with it. But another problem with it is that the way that Lupin's status as a werewolf bears out is, you know, because he says in this chapter, it's a really interesting and provocative line. He says, because he had no one else to scratch and bite, he harmed himself because there was no other person to harm. He harmed himself, which would seem to make HIV and AIDS like an act of self-harm, which given the early rhetoric around HIV AIDS Mm -hmm. in the 80s, the way that it was deployed by a lot of homophobic folks as sort of like a self-inflicted disease, that just is super, super uncomfortable to think that Rowling calls us his harm self-inflicted because he can't harm others. Then to call it, to associate it with HIV and AIDS, that, that that's really worrisome and folds into early tropes around HIV and AIDS, which, which were awful and led to to unnecessary death and suffering for for lots of people for lots of years. Yeah, it was just complete misinformation. Yeah, right. With bad intentions. Right. Yeah, I I mean, I'm just reminded of Susan Sontag, right, who talks about illness as metaphor and essentially the illness should never be used as metaphor. The illness is illness. Illness is not yeah. metaphor. And I think, you know, the mythology around werewolves is an interesting mythology that goes back thousands of years and um, and is like cross-cultural in a lot of ways. And and yeah, I just wish rather than <laughs> treating it as a metaphor for something, yep. she had just yep. really invested in werewolves as werewolves. Yeah. I mean, the other huge problem with it is that a, a lot of the folklore, I mean, I'm not a folkloricist, but a lot of the folklore around werewolves had to do with like sexual appetite right it was a it was a thinly veiled metaphor for for engaging in sex and 
And again, this, this the kind of rhetoric around HIV and AIDS that had to do with condemning the sex lives of folks or, or reading this disease as a self-inflicted sort of punishment for the sex lives of folks is just really poisonous and evil. Yeah. So I, it sucks. <laughs> I don't like it. I love Lupin. Yeah. <laughs> I hate Lupin's this great. metaphor. Yep. So Matt, we're now going to do Florilegium, where we each share a sentence, where it's from, why we picked it, and then put them in conversations with one another. Which sentence have you picked from this chapter? I just mentioned it because I thought it was a really provocative line, and it's one I want to think more about. But it's a line that comes from the passage where Lupin is beginning to tell his story about his days in the Shrieking Shack when he was in his wolf form. And the line is this. I was separated from humans to bite, so I bit and scratched myself instead. Yeah, I, I don't think this tells us much about HIV and AIDS. <laughs> but <laughs> there is something, I think, wise in it about human behavior, about how the urge to cause harm and the urge to harm oneself are bound up in each other in some situations, not every situation, but in some situations. And it's something that that line might help us think through. Yeah, it's such a sad sentence and... Even if you take out that like middle to bite, right? That when you're separated yeah. from other people, we scratch and bite ourselves. Yeah. Right. We can be so hard on ourselves when we're isolated. Yeah. Well, so I picked the sentence, he has his reasons, you see. And this is, so Lubin is telling us Snape was at school with us all these years ago. And he knows that I'm a werewolf because he, you know, saw me and he was really against me getting this defense against the dark arts job and he's been telling Dumbledore to fire me and he he's actually about to tell the story about when Snape saw him but this he has his reasons you see it was just making me think of like <laughs> he has his reasons not just reasons right and that we all have our own reasons for things. And I, I, in theory, wish there was some sort of like court to adjudicate whether or not our reasons are quote unquote good enough reasons. And I feel like that's one of the conversations that I have with friends a lot, right? Like I have my reasons, but are they good reasons? I just think it's interesting that Lupin doesn't say he had good reasons. You see, he says he had his reasons, mm -hmm. which like is just justifications and you know, motivations yeah. and trying to figure out when those are good and when those are bad, I think is one of the complications of being alive. Yeah. But there is a sympathy in it, right? Like he, he yeah. is able to see it from his perspective. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he's trying to convince them, like, I want you to see it, right? Like right. he has yeah, his right. reasons. That's what I mean. Right? Even if they're not good, we can still have sympathy, yeah. right? This is, in some ways, it's like a gesture of the kind of friendship we were talking about before, which is like, Maybe he's not living up to the values we would want, but we can see why he would do this and we can maybe help bring him back. Yeah. Yeah. Lupin might you know, be my favorite. <laughs> he's so great. Yeah. And I love that in this chapter, he hasn't given up his role as teacher. Yep. We talk so much about failed pedagogy at Hogwarts and Lupin in this chapter is just like, it is important that they understand, right? Like, yep. no, we have to make sure that they understand before we just show them another violence. And like, yeah. and again with Snape, right? He's like, Snape wanted to attack me, but he has his reasons. And he's like, yep. not speaking a bad word about another teacher. He's just like, right. still such a professional professor. Yeah. I agree. Lupin shines. Okay, let's put these two sentences together. 
I was separated from humans to bite, so I bit and scratched myself instead. He has his reasons, you see. I mean, that sounds to me like Snape's or whoever his reasons are, are because he's witnessed self-harm, right? So hmm. it's like, I've, se- I've seen this person bite and scratch themselves, and those are my reasons for whatever it is, for my concern, for my acting out, et cetera. Yeah. So do you, when you read it together that way, do you hear two speakers or one speaker? One. Yeah. If it, right. And they are both Lupin. Yeah, they are both Lupin. Right, right, right. But so I can imagine him being like, you know, Snape has always been really concerned for me. I was separated from humans to bite. So I bit and scratched myself and said, he has his reasons, you see, right? Like, yeah. If if the self-harm is the evidence rather than violence, then yeah. you come to different conclusions. Hearing them all in a single voice, it's sort of like, I was dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Snape was right to be concerned, although yeah. I could have been safe. And that Dumbledore was like, I don't blame him for being worried about me because I was dangerous. And he says this to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, like, we were reckless. We shouldn't have been out. I could have really harmed someone. I'm up at night thinking about what might have happened. There's a, even a sympathy there that like, you know, Snape was following us around everywhere and trying to catch me out. But I get it because I really was dangerous in those yeah. times, even to myself. There's a little bit of that same sympathy we you were just talking about. I think when we put them together, we can see it emerge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's also true about this year, right? Snape yeah. is suspicious that Lupin is helping Sirius get into the castle. Right. And Snape is not right on the facts. Right. But he's right insofar as Lupin has not told Dumbledore right. mm-hmm. that Sirius could be getting in as a dog. That's right. And that is, that's a bad move, Lupin. Yes, that is. And so Snape's concern, you know, we'll talk more about this in an upcoming chapter. This is a very complicated book about Snape. Yeah. Like, he is, like, sniveling and annoying, and also he's, like, not always wrong on the facts. No, that's right. Yeah. And the people that we like a lot and admire a lot, like Lupin, really are in the wrong. I mean, it it happens that they end up right and things work out, but if Sirius is who Lupin thought he was— this is an incredible oversight to not mention this to Dumbledore. Yeah. I mean, it's more than an oversight, right? It's yeah. an intentional choice. And what? To protect himself from 30 years ago? Yeah, it's a failing. Like, yeah. he doesn't want to confess to Dumbledore that 30 years ago he was a dumb kid? Yeah. It's, like, such a silly reason. But it, it actually gets to the sentence that you picked, right? Like, he is separated and isolated mm. in his werewolfness, And so he's biting and scratching himself, right? Like, yeah. he is just, like, in the spiral of, like, I can't tell him. He'll know I'm a bad person, right? Like, right. the ways that we justify things and just spiral into self-loathing when we're alone. Right. Right? Like, Lupin has his reasons. They're bad reasons. Yeah. But, you know, in his isolation. It just occurred to me that 12 years ago, Lupin lost his only friends in the world all at once. Yeah. Right? The only people who were with him and who accompanied him through this, who the only friends he had were through this kind of event. He lost all of them all at once. And so he has been isolated all this time. Yeah, boy, that's right. I hadn't really thought of that. But that's that's right. I hadn't either. And you just also realize... Like, Snape and Lupin could be great allies, right? Like, Snape is also not letting go something from 30 years ago. They could really be great allies here. Lupin could say, 
you know, should I tell Dumbledore? Snape would say Dumbledore is very understanding of yeah. past mistakes. Yeah, you right, know, like right. th- this is a a sad missed opportunity of friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's put the sentences in the other order. So it's, he has his reasons. You see, I was separated from humans to bite. So I bit and scratched myself instead. To me, that f- this this leads to a meaning I don't like as much as the meaning we had before, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reverse order, the one that we just did, I, I feel like we got to a place of understanding between Snape and Lupin. In this one, it sounds it sounds more like an initial sympathy. He had his reasons. Snape had his reasons. But the kind of pressure of him trying to catch me out, all this stuff led to me being further isolated and me further harming myself, right? That on the other hand, like maybe that's why it's important to read the sentences in both directions, because I think we can see both things are true at once in the relationship between yeah. Snape and Lupin, that there's both this kind of sympathy, but also real suspicion and harm between them. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot that nowadays we care a lot about impact as opposed to intent, that like it doesn't matter that you didn't mean to hurt me. The fact is that you hurt me. Yeah, And I... I I agree to some extent, but I actually do think that things can sting less when you know that the person didn't mean to hurt you, right? There's like a real difference between someone, you know, turning around quickly and not seeing you're there and accidentally smacking you between someone like winding up and smacking you. Yeah, right. And that is what I'm hearing in this difference, right? Is an acknowledgement of like, look, he had good intentions, but like there was an impact. Yeah. And the complications of both, that like both matter. Like either way, you get smacked in the face and that right. stinks. But like, the, it, it's different. And what I hear in this reading is like, but at the end of the day, I got smacked in the face. Yeah, right. Right. Matt, thank you so much. This was a really lovely florilegia. Thank you for, for facilitating it, Vanessa. It was great. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Bianca. Hey, Vanessa, Matt, and the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Bianca. I live in California, and I am a huge fan of the podcast. I was just listening to Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and I thought of a Havruta for you about the special award to the school that Tom Riddle received for framing Hagrid. The wizarding public knows that Tom Riddle eventually assumed the name Lord Voldemort and has committed so many horrific acts under both names. This reminded me of how many statues, monuments, holidays, etc. have been kept in a celebratory status even once the public becomes more educated about atrocities that have been committed by that person or group. Only Dumbledore seemed to have suspicions that Tom was behind the opening of the Chamber of Secrets and Myrtle's death 50 years prior, but especially once they find out that Tom was controlling Ginny through the diary this year, now everyone should know the truth. Do you think the award is removed at the end of this year? Should there have been a vote to have Tom Riddle's award removed once everyone became aware of all the terrible things he was doing as either Tom or Lord Voldemort? My answer is that I would like to think when Harry and Ron's special awards to the school are displayed for saving Ginny, also wears Hermione's award. Tom Riddles would be removed, though I doubt it. I think the award should have been removed a long time ago, and I'd like to think that someone on the staff would have brought that forward. This also made me think about Hagrid. I don't know how often he goes into the trophy room, but I'm sure anytime he does, seeing Tom Riddle's award must bring up so many traumatizing thoughts and feelings from being expelled 50 years ago, the horror of the Chamber of Secrets being opened, and Myrtle's death. I want to bless Hagrid and anyone being faced with an inappropriate celebrations of a person or group and hope that the right action is taken eventually with acknowledgement and removal. I'd love to hear what y'all think and thank you so much for all that you do. Bye. Bianca, thanks for that, Havruta. And that really perceptive, like, yeah, boy, what did they do with his award? I mean, you know, one thing that happened at Harvard recently is that, you know, we have been exploring our relationship to slavery and white supremacy and releasing reports. And part of that process is there is a committee at the university that's that's investigating when and how to rename. You know, some of the buildings here are named after folks who own slaves. One of our crests in one of our schools was based upon the coat of arms of a slaveholding family. These are really difficult matters because we also don't want to be erasing a history, which is part of who we are, right? White supremacy did help build Harvard. And to pretend that it didn't would be a great moral failing. Wizarding supremacy built Hogwarts and to pretend that it didn't would be a great failing. But I think the difference here is more clear. And I think you pointed to this, Bianca, which is that we don't need to keep an award up, right? Like you can remember the past without celebrating it. That's one point that several people here at Harvard have made, that we can take concrete actions to publicly remember. But that doesn't mean that we're celebrating or honoring the failings of the past. And the fact that this is not just saying, boy, Tom Riddle was a student here. And like, we're not covering up that fact is different than, than saying, here's this award we gave to Tom Riddle and it's still up in the trophy room. So I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it probably doesn't come down. I think it probably ought to. And I'm really grateful for your voicemail calling attention to it. 
right? A plaque in the trophy room that says, unfortunately, for 50 years, we left up a trophy celebrating Tom Riddle. That's Seems right. like more appropriate than leaving up the trophy, right? That's right. And wizarding supremacy is what allowed us to wrongly accuse the wrong person all these years, so, right? Right. So put up a plaque. And here Hagrid. is a picture of Rubius Pag- Hagrid. <laughs> exactly. Who's done all of this service for the school, despite the fact. Exactly. So there's a, a form of memory, which is not a celebration of the past, but acknowledges the violence of it. Yeah. Thank you, Bianca. That's a great voice memo. Now is a time when we remember those members of our community who have been loved and lost. Lee Cogswell, 74, an honorary grandma devoted to family. Wong Jin Sho, 92, a beloved grandfather. John Pennell, 92, father, grandfather, and devoted firefighter. Chris, 35, they lived in the gray areas, but made them colorful. Russ Bowis, 55, a mentor and friend. Tyler Jeffrey Baseman, 17, a beloved and loving son and brother. Jane Miller, 80, loving Mima, forever teacher. Ben Hillier, grandfather of five and loving father. Michelle Adams, 56, compassionate early childhood teacher, friend, mom, and grandmother. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, it's time for blessings now. Who would you like to bless this week? I am blessing our wonderful Hermione, who is like Professor Lupin. It is not possible that three of you became Animagi because I read the register while doing my homework. And there have only been six who were approved in the last hundred years. And And Harry sort of remarks like, oh my God, Hermione does such a good job on her homework. But I don't think that this is her motivated to like get extra points on her homework. I think that this is genuine curiosity. This kid who didn't grow up in this world is like, what? People can turn into animals. How is that regulated? And she like goes down the wizarding equivalent of a Reddit rabbit hole and somehow <laughs> like remembers all the names or at least well enough to be like that name wasn't on there of all of the people who have become animagi and the markings. And I just think all curiosity should be applauded, especially this kind that's like very fact-based and research-based and 
you know, is not like YouTube feeding you another misogynistic video. This is like real rigorous research motivated by curiosity and Hermione. And I just want to offer a blessing to anyone who is doing the hard work of educating themselves. It is a beautiful thing. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless? Vanessa, I was going to bless Dumbledore, both of us true to form this week. Because yeah. I, because I admire just the 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 intent to use your language. I admire the intent of of Dumbledore to bring a werewolf into the school. But I I have to say that you know impact counts too, as you noted, and I think that his attempts to accommodate Lupin here were sort of clumsy at best, and probably led to some problems. And so I though I do want to honor that intent. I think I I want to bless Lupin based upon our conversation. I think he's been isolated for so long. He has this isolating malady that he lives with, with, it seems like a fair amount of integrity and deliberateness. And in this chapter, he, as our conversation is kind of, has revealed to me, I didn't think, I don't think I realized it while reading the chapter, but our conversation really revealed to me how even-handed and non-judgmental he is throughout this chapter of Sirius, even of Snape, of the children. And there's that, that sort of patience, that even-handedness coming from someone who has been so isolated and who has suffered so much. Yeah, it's really quite lovely. And so, yeah, I want to bless Lupin this week. Vanessa, next week we are reading book three, chapter 19, The Servant of Lord Voldemort, to the theme of virtue. Oh, that's going to be so easy for me to tell a story about. Matt, just one announcement before we give our thanks, which is we are going to be making a big announcement in just a few weeks. And so please go and sign up for our newsletter. You can do that by going to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com. But be sure to sign up for our newsletter so that you get this news as soon as possible, because it is for something wonderful where space is slightly limited. I'll say no more. Also, we offer amazing monthly recommendations. Matt, is almost always going to tell you something to cook. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited and produced and lovingly curated by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Eric Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Bianca for their voicemail this week. Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Trakyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones, and all of our patrons, new and old. Thank you so much. Also, we offer amazing monthly recommendations. Matt is almost always going to tell you something to cook. I, I think I went too. on a streak. I went like a several month streak of no cooking because I was doing too many cooking. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And so you did obscure books to read instead. I, I did. Now I'm back to cooking. <laughs> Woo! Phew.